The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. In First Corinthians chapter, excuse me, First Chronicles, at chapter eleven, we see that uh, King Saul has died. And if you have headings in your Bible, it says David becomes king over Israel. Now, I know I just led you to First Chronicles chapter 11, but for some more details, we need to look at the overlapping passage of Scripture in Second Samuel. Let me summarize for you. First of all, there's First Samuel, beginning with the birth of Samuel, who was the last of the judges of Israel, leading them and also prophet that God would use to anoint the first king of Israel, Saul. And that transitioned the nation of Israel from uh, loosely held uh, tribes that were led by judges to a kingdom led by a king. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was chosen by the Lord to be king of Israel. But soon after he became king, he disobeyed the Lord. He didn't follow through on very clear instructions that the Lord had given him. And so Samuel was instructed by the Lord to go and anoint David. David from the house of Jesse, from the tribe of Judah. And then the rest of 1 Samuel is essentially that account of Saul, who is jealous of David and pursuing David, and his attempts to kill David even, protecting Saul's own throne and dynasty. Interesting thing is that David actually served in Saul's army after he had defeated Goliath. Many of you know that story. His popularity among the people of Israel grew and grew even greater than Saul the king's. And in fact, David had a very interesting relationship to the king because the king was actually his father-in-law. He had won Michael, Saul's daughter, as his prize for having defeated Goliath. And Saul's son, the heir to the throne, Jonathan, was David's best friend. And so as Saul continued to pursue David, David was assisted by Jonathan, the heir to the throne. He was assisted by Michael, his wife, in his attempts to escape the attacks from Saul. And again and again, Saul pursued David, trying to kill him, while David, who knew he was anointed as king, managed to avoid Saul and even avoided harming and killing Saul when he was given the opportunity. So David goes from being a shepherd to being someone who serves in the king's court And then all of a sudden, a fugitive of the king, and then suddenly he becomes the king. And it's a remarkable testament of David's character, his ability to wait on the Lord's timing, to respect the one that the Lord had appointed as king over him. David was even given opportunity to kill Saul at one point and then take over the throne. But David said to his men at the time, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. So then when David heard of Saul's death in battle, from the Amalekite who admitted to extinguishing Saul's last breath as he lay fallen on his own sword, David asked the Amalekite, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? See, David knew that Saul's death And the death of his good friend Jonathan, the heir to the throne, would mean that the kingdom of Israel would now be his. It would belong to him. And yet, when they died, he mourned for them. 
See, David had this amazing ability to simply wait for his time. He was more interested in God's plan for his life than his own. And so his way of ascending the throne was not because he was grabbing at it himself. He wasn't ambitious for the throne. In fact, what happened upon Saul's death was that Saul's army captain, Abner, took one of Saul's other sons, Ishbosheth, and he made him king over several tribes, and it seems all of them, except for the tribe of Judah. Now, Judah was David's family, and Judah was very quick in the city of Hebron to recognize David as their king. And so there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And that was fought essentially not between Saul or any of David's, or David or any of Saul's descendants, but fought between the army captains. Ishbosheth's army was led by Abner, David's army was led by Joab, and Joab's brothers Abishai and Asahel. And some of the battles that are recorded in those chapters of First Chronicles and Second Samuel shows how Abner killed Asahel. So now Joab, the commander of David's army, was looking for a reason and an opportunity to avenge his brother's death. And then in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, the house of David, it says, was growing stronger during those years, while the house of Saul was growing weaker. And one of the ways that Saul's house grew weaker and weaker was that Ishbosheth, remember the son of Saul here, he began to, to doubt the loyalty of Abner, his army captain, and accused him of having slept with one of Saul's concubines. Well, Abner was, of course, offended by that, so angered so much that he vowed in the strongest possible terms that he would then transfer the kingdom out of Ishbosheth's hands into David's hands. And so he made most of the arrangements then to make sure that the people of all of Israel would now swear their allegiance to David as king. He spoke with the Benjamites, the Saul's tribe. He met with David to let him know that Israel and the Benjamites were ready to assemble themselves. And then David sent Abner away in peace. Well, Joab, on the other hand, he sees Abner leaving Hebron and thinks that Abner is going to somehow usurp the king. And now Joab finds an opportunity to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel, and he goes ahead and kills Abner. David completely distanced himself he had nothing to do with Abner's death. He condemned Job's actions with a curse. And then he called all the people together to mourn for Abner. And Abner's death then caused Ishbosheth to lose courage, caused his people to be alarmed. And then, in fact, two of his own army captains assassinated Ishbosheth. Exciting stories, all in your very own Bible. I hope you read the details sometime later. But here was David then at the age of a young 30 year old. And all the people of Israel, the tribe of Judah, swearing their allegiance to him and anointed him in Hebron as their king. So David goes from being a shepherd to a powerful military leader in the king's army and then a fugitive leader and then eventually a king of the united Israel. Now, throughout all of these events, as you read through these things, David demonstrates he trusted God to deliver the throne to him. He trusted God to deliver him out of his troubles. He did nothing to try to usurp the power of the one who was anointed and appointed king, and that was Saul. He was principled when it came to being, uh, doing justice for wrongdoings. He fought his battles in the strength of the Lord and upon the instructions of the Lord as he waited patiently for his time. And this, friends, is what I believe we can learn as a first principle from David's life. Whatever our achievements and our desires may be, See, ambition 
isn't always a bad character quality. Follow with me here. You know, people have put a man on the moon because of ambition. People have made breakthroughs in medicine and in technology because of ambition, saving many lives. Competition can be good, and if you play anything against me, trust me, I will do my best and compete against you. A lot of things can be attributed to a healthy ambition, to do things better, to be more efficient, to serve more people. But ambition can be selfish. Ambition, when it's selfish, leads the ambitious to wrong attitudes about others. It causes one to commit crimes to reach our goals and to hurt people in our wake. Because selfish ambition is all about me getting to the top and clinging to my place. And when ambition is selfish, then others and their feelings don't matter anymore. Laws and rules, even etiquette, get ignored. See, people often seek a title, a degree, a job, or a position, or a co in a company, or in an educational institution, even the presidency, any other place of power or influence and riches. Ambition itself isn't wrong unless it becomes selfish and pursuing those for selfish goals. And there may be nothing wrong about that position, but there could be a lot of things wrong about the ambition getting there, because there's a whole lot of things that can be wrong about motives and means to get there when that ambition is selfish. Well, David's ambition was to pursue God's plan for his life. And so I believe the first lesson we can learn today as David ascends the throne is that our ambition, we should be ambitious for God's plan for our life, not our own plans of our life. David knew he was anointed as king instead of Saul while he was still a shepherd tending his father's sheep. But it was God's plan to make David the king, and so nothing was going to hinder that plan. David, of course, used his own skills and his strength, his musical talents, his leadership abilities. He had God on his side to protect him and to advance God's plans for him, not his own plans. He achieved the greatest moment of his life and became a great man because that was God's plan for his life and not his own. His zeal is captured well. Remember the battle that catapulted him into the hearts of the people of Israel. That was the battle against Goliath. What did he say when he stood against Goliath? Was it his own battle he was fighting? Was it the, oh, his own victory he was pursuing? Not at all. He was the unknown youngest brother of a clan, and he says to Goliath, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. He said, this day the Lord will hand you over to me. He said, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And it says, all those, or then he said, all those gathered here will, will know, not that I'm a great man. He said, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. You know, the selfishly ambitious would not be zealous for anyone else or anyone else's reputation than their own. And when you and I follow our own plan in life, we would say, well, maybe not overtly, but some of us have perhaps thought this, I will conquer my enemies and my competitors. I will win this one. By my own hand, I built this house or this company or this enterprise, this empire or this name of mine. I want the whole world one day to know my name. 
That was not David's ambition. He did not achieve the throne of Israel through selfish ambition, but by God's plan for his life. And so if God's plan for our life is greatness, whether it's power or fame or wealth, we need to pursue his plan for our lives. And selfish ambition becomes completely unnecessary. Whatever level of greatness God may have planned for you, you too must learn to follow his plan instead of having a plan of your own to pursue ambitiously. Maybe our influence may reach just our children. But who knows? Who might they influence? Maybe our fame may reach just our own town, our small village. But who knows? Maybe the village can suddenly make a difference on the world stage. And maybe our wealth will pale in comparison to the billionaires of the world. But again, it's not how much we have. It's what we do with what we have that matters to God. So first of all, we must be more interested in God's plans for us than our own, and that will keep us from selfish ambition. Now, let's continue on what happens to David upon uh, the, the establishing of his throne. His kingdom was established then through following victories over the Jebusites, who had occupied Jerusalem, and over the Philistines, who had for many years been pestering the Israelites and oftentimes winning in the battles against them. So when David then goes against Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who had occupied it. The city was so well fortified, the Jebusites were convinced that David and his men could never prevail against it. But David was able to conquer the city. He took up residence there. He renamed it to the city of David, and it became the center of his kingdom. And the writer of 2 Samuel leaves no doubt as to what made David strong. He says this, He became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Even the surrounding kings, the king of uh, Tyre, Hiram, provided all the cedar logs, the carpenters, and the stonemasons that were needed to build a palace because he knew that the Lord had established David as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And then First First Chronicles chapter 11 and 12 lists all the mighty men who joined themselves to him uh, during his time under Saul and Israel gathered together to swear their allegiance to him. But David's strength as a military leader was also demonstrated in his victory over the Philistines, who were never again able to pose a threat to Israel. And one of the stories I'd like to draw your attention to is in chapter 14. It's one of those that are just tucked in there that we don't often notice. It shows us how God's heavenly armies went before David to win his battles. Because before the... uh, Raiding the Philistines, David inquired of the Lord. He says in verse 10, excuse me, yeah, in verse 10, so David inquired of God, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord answered him, go, I will hand them over to you. So David and his men went up to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as the waters break out, God has broken out against my enemies by my hand. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines had abandoned their gods there, and David gave orders to burn them in the fire. Verse 13, once more the Philistines raided the valley, so David inquired of God again. And God answered him, do not go straight up, but circle around them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move out to battle because that will mean God has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did 
as God commanded him, and they struck down the Philistine army all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. And then chapter 14 ends with the fact that David's fame spread throughout every land, and the Lord made the nations all fear him. See, it's interesting that if you are going to fight your battles, then you don't know who's on your side. But if you're going to fight the Lord's battles, then you know who's going to win those battles. See, David was only winning these battles upon the instruction of the Lord and inquiring of him. And then the Lord said to him, wait until you hear in the tops of the trees um, before you go in and attack. And the Lord went before him. So this, uh, this, the whole time that David was ascending to the throne, he was constantly inquiring of the Lord. He was constantly acknowledging that it was the Lord and his presence that would be the one to win the battle. And after, or under David's leadership, the Ark of the Covenant had been in kareth Jerim for a while, and it was brought to Jerusalem so that it could be at the center of worship for all of Israel. And there was an initial attempt to bring it back, and maybe some of you know this story, that Uzzah noticed as the oxen were stumbling, he reached out then because it looked like the Ark of the Covenant was going to fall, and as soon as he did, the Lord's anger broke out against him, and he died there. This, of course, caused great fear among the people. And then so when they wanted to bring it back again, David makes sure that, he, that they bring it back according to all of the instructions that they were supposed to do. So David feared the Lord. David knew that if, if they uh, brought it again or attempted again without following the Lord's instructions, that the Lord's anger would break out against them again. And I believe we can learn from David's life not only through the battles that he fought, but also his respect for the Ark of the Covenant, that God is always at work in the spiritual realm to accomplish his will and his desires. David was always aware of the Lord in the spiritual dimension. So you and I live so much in the physical world. We often forget that beyond the things that we can see and touch and feel, there are things going on that we cannot always see because we have to feed ourselves physical food to survive, because we have to get to physical places, we have to move physical objects, there's in fact a lot more going on that we're not even aware of. Even now, in all of your pockets, there's an electronic device with electricity in them. You probably weren't even aware of that until I mentioned that they were in your pockets. Communication, even now as we speak, is happening in thin air as people speak on cell phones, long distance, as voices travel up to satellites and back. We don't see that happening. Money is being moved. Currencies are being traded. And all that's changing is your bank account, the certain numbers that are going up or down, depending on whether you're making money or not making money. There are dust particles in the air right now that we're not even aware of. But if we waited for a while, they would all collect on the ground. See, we're not aware of all of these things and we're not aware oftentimes of the things happening in the spiritual realm, of demons and angels, of God and the devil. We're completely unaware of what's going on in the spiritual realm until, until we take a moment to focus on it, either in prayer or simply acknowledging that those things are happening around us. And David was always in the habit of inquiring of the Lord, before all of his physical battles, making sure that what he was about to embark on was the Lord's will for his life. And then the Lord's army went out ahead of him. So David's army was assured of the victory. And as he brought back the Ark of the Covenant, he said that for the first, that the first time we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul, 
and that when they did, he said that the Lord's anger was unleashed because you, the Levites, he said, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So this was now to make sure that they did do it in the prescribed way. And so it's this awareness that I believe you and I can learn of, this awareness of the presence of the Holy Almighty God. How is it demonstrated? It's demonstrated through a life that is always continuously praying and inquiring of the Lord. I ask you today, how is your prayer life? Is your prayer life the one that's reserved for so-called big decisions only? Is your prayer life basically the as-needed basis? Or like the attitude of most unbelievers, use only in case of emergency? Or are you aware always that the Lord is present and that it is His will that you should be pursuing? See, that's why wisdom or the applying of knowledge rightly starts with the right fear of the Lord, acknowledging His presence at all times. When we acknowledge His presence at all times, we, then we, we don't do the things we know we shouldn't do in pu- private or in public. We're aware of His holy presence everywhere, that He sees and He knows everything. I love spending a day with Mike Murphy. Many of you have done that when we've gone on our, our, our trips to Warsaw. You spend a day with him, you notice that pretty much before he does anything, he breathes a quick prayer. Before he starts the car, he says, Lord, help us to get there safely. Before he goes into a prison to do ministry, he says, let's pray for a moment before we go in. Pretty much any time you're doing anything with him, he wants to stop and pray first. He knows that all that he does has a spiritual dimension to it. He knows that all he's trying to accomplish needs to be the Lord's work for his life. And so he's always breathing in, uh, in and breathing out prayers. And I believe, too, that we can learn from David's life that we should have a healthy awareness of God's holy and almighty presence. That will give us the confidence we need to fulfill his plans. And then a third thing about David, and that is that especially as you continue in, the, uh, in First Chronicles in chapter 17, you see a promise that is made to David. During the course of David's reign, Several developments happened that firmly established David as Israel's leader. And God brought his people from a time of of need to a time of prosperity and strength. He brought his people from a chaotic time of the judges to an established monarchy with a central government. He took a group of loosely bonded set of tribes and tribal lands and made them into a unified nation that reigned over an established territory. The people of Israel went from a people who were subject to their enemies to a nation that subdued their enemies and turned them into vassal states. The people of Israel went from being idolatrous people worshiping in many corners of their land to a people united in worship of the Lord under David's leadership, worshiping together in the place that the Lord had chosen. And all of these were a fulfillment of a promise that the Lord had made many generations and years earlier. But see, the thing is, the best was yet to come. There were even greater things in store for David. Now that the center of worship, prepared by the Levites attending to the sacrifices, were in, were in Jerusalem, they were concerned. Uh, David now was concerned that the Ark of the Covenant, that representation of the Lord's presence, didn't have a proper home. It had been intense all the time. And so he called for Nathan the prophet, told him at first, uh, so he called for Nathan the prophet, and the prophet told him at first, you go ahead and do what's in your heart to do. But then the word of the Lord comes to Nathan, 
before David could get started on any of his plans. And essentially, this is what the word of the Lord was to David. He said this, I have never asked for a house of cedar. He said, I, will, I took you from among the sheep to become a shepherd of my people. I will make your name like the names of the greatest men of earth. And he said, I will provide a place for my people where they will have peace and prosperity. And then he said, I will build a house for you. Notice the irony. David, wanting a place permanent for the, for the Ark of the Covenant, wanted to build a house for it. And, they, and God comes back to David and says, I'm going to build you a house. Not a physical house, but a dynasty. I will build you a kingdom. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. I will establish his kingdom, and he will build a house for me. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. Now, David, being the man that he is with his character, he knew immediately the implication. And his prayer is recorded also in chapter 17. And basically, this is what he says. He says, who am I? What can I say? Who is like you, O Lord, the God of Israel? He was so overwhelmed that the creator of the universe would bless this servant with so much. And that's what's so remarkable about his prayer. King David stands for us today as the symbol and the ancestor of the Messiah, the Lord's anointed one, the ruler through whom all of the covenants made to his people would be fulfilled. And the New Testament writers took great pains to show that this Jesus of Nazareth was the descendant of David that God had promised to him in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. The Messiah would be David's offspring, and he would rule over a far more glorious kingdom that is eternal. And Jesus of Nazareth wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, also known as David's city. The one whom Israel had been waiting for as a fulfillment of God's covenants would come from David's line. And so you and I can learn from David that the Lord exalts those who are humble. As great as David became, David knew where he had come from. He said, what is my family that you brought me this far? He acknowledged it was God who went out to redeem a people for himself and performed the great and awesome wonders. He knew that his role was that of a servant. Jesus himself enthroned in heaven, being in the very nature of God, would take on human flesh, be born in humble circumstances, have no real set place to rest his head. He too made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and humbling himself and being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Friends, I don't know what achievements and goals and pursuits you have, but David, as well as Jesus himself, is our example of humility. Even Paul, arguably the greatest influence on the world since Christ himself, says, I became a servant for the gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Peter and James, both of them apostles of Christ, in their books say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, quoting from Solomon's Proverbs. And then go on to say, so therefore be clothed with humility towards one another and humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So let us remember that God chose us to be his precious children. 
children that would belong to him, children who would be given the gift of eternal life through faith in Christ, not because of anything that we had deserved. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had nothing good in us that would earn us the right to be called sons. We wanted to do things our way. And in our rebellion, we turned our backs on God. And yet, he loved us enough to send his most precious son, calling us to live eternally in his kingdom to enjoy his presence forever. And there's a wonderful person in the life of David who is a representative, I believe, of us as well. And his name try to say this with me, is Mephibosheth. <laughs> Mephibosheth. See, David did something very unusual when he had already ascended the throne of the kingdom. Normally, what a king would do is he would make sure that there were no other heirs to the previous king and make sure that he would just get rid of them all. Well, David didn't do that. He actually sought out, are there any more descendants of Saul so that I can bless them? for the sake of my friend David. Uh, Jonathan, he said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a son of Jonathan whose name was Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was crippled in both feet. So David sent for him and he said to him, I will restore you to you all of the land of your grandfather Saul and you shall eat at my table regularly. So Mephibosheth turned, went from being a very helpless, fearful servant to now being treated as King David's own sons with full honors. Friends, you and I, by the grace of God, are just like Mephibosheth, dead in our trespasses and sins, having nothing to earn or to merit eternal life. And yet God invites us into his presence to feast at his table to be considered among one of his own children. So whenever you feel like you deserve certain treatment, or you should be recognized in a special way, or that your position means that there are certain acts of service that are beneath you. Remember, I am Mephibosheth. Try to say that a few times. <laughs> I am Mephibosheth. Remember that name. And humble ourselves before the Lord at all times so he can lift us up when the time is right. Friends, I know that I've just portrayed a picture of you that sounds like David was perfect. Well, we know that he wasn't perfect. And uh, only... His son, born the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was the perfect one. But in many ways, David was the type of Christ, the foreshadowing of the one who would be perfect in every way, the Messiah, the Son of God, because Jesus, too, like David, came to fulfill the Father's will. He did the Father's will, and he was not ambitious for a place of honor or the throne of the kingdom. You know, he could have been granted all the kingdoms of the earth had he been willing to fall for the temptation of the enemy, the devil. He wouldn't have had to go via the cross. You know, Jesus, too, could have retaliated against his enemies when they flogged and crucified him. And just like David, Jesus was in constant communion with the Father, zealous for the Father's holy name, praying throughout the course of his life and ministry. And just like David, Jesus then was the example of humility. Jesus had every right to the high and lofty position that he deserved of king of all the universe, but he chose instead to become the sacrificial lamb. So the three lessons I believe we can learn from David's life are reflected even in our Lord Jesus Christ. Be ambitious, but be ambitious for God's plan. Always acknowledge God's presence, and that'll show in your prayer life, 
and then assume a servant's posture. Be humble in the eyes of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Let us pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.